Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have part two of our conversation with singer, songwriter, and producer Todd Rundgren. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. Always so glad that you tune in. I have my friend John Hughes here with me. How are you, John? I'm excited, Rich. I love Todd Rundgren, so I, I loved part one. I cannot wait to listen to part two, so that's exciting. He's such a nice guy, and it just struck me as I was talking to him. I'm talking to Todd Rundgren like I'm just sitting around having a beer with a friend. He's so affable and personable but this guy is a musical genius. This label absolutely fits with Todd Rundgren. I love it. And I love the fact that uh, he's doing a new song with Sparks, which, you know, wow, that's cool because he produced their first record and signed them to Bearsville way in the early 70s. So that's kind of a full circle moment that I'm looking forward to. Absolutely. And in this episode, the second episode with Todd, since we had such a nice long interview with him, he does talk about continually wanting to work on his craft and not lean back on his past successes, but look to the future and create. And this thing with Sparks, perfect example. He's nonstop. I love it. What else is going on in the world of Rhino? Well, right now, Rhino Records and National Geographic have just released a new cover of Aretha Franklin's classic Chain of Fools from the Genius Aretha miniseries. This highly anticipated series starring double Oscar nominee Cynthia Erivo as the Queen of Soul premieres on the Nat Geo channel with double stacked episodes across four consecutive nights beginning Sunday, March 21st at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central, as they used to say. The premiere episodes will be available the next day on Hulu, and all this culminates in a celebration of Aretha Franklin's birthday with all eight episodes available to stream by Thursday, March 25th. In the meantime, that new version of Chain of Fools featuring Cynthia Erivo is available to stream now. Oh, fantastic. You know, I saw the trailer for this. I'm really looking forward to it. And I think it's great that it's going to be out on Hulu right after it premieres on National Geographic. So if you don't have the National Geographic channel, flip on over to Hulu. We can all enjoy it. And dig it. Hey, March Metal Madness, we've got a lot of metal stuff going on. If you have not been to rhino.com and you're not following us 
on Facebook or Instagram, you really should. You've got the March Metal Bracket where you can vote for the biggest metal band of all time, in your opinions. Lots of uh, lots of debate on the socials about that one. And, uh, you know, while we've got March Metal Madness, this is not the best segue, admittedly, but Jethro Tull celebrates 40 <laughs> years of the album A with a three CD, three DVD anniversary collection that expands the group's 1980 album with Stephen Wilson's newly remixed version of the original, plus unreleased studio and live recordings and a remixed version of the Slipstream video collection. For this new collection, the album has been expanded with five unreleased tracks from the recording sessions, and it also includes a live recording from November 1980 of the band's full concert at the LA Sports Arena. The full Slipstream video, which made its DVD debut in 2004, it's also included in this anniversary edition. But here, that content has been newly remixed by Stephen Wilson. Jethro Tull, A, 40th anniversary edition, comes out April 16th. See what I did there? I I did. I I, <laughs> I, I was impressed. That was very quick. Look, they're not all going to be gold. <laughs> Stephen Wilson is a remix genius, so we know this one's going to sound fantastic. 100%. There's a reason why he's a popular guy. Well, John, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Rich. Enjoy. Well, this episode, we do have part two of our conversation with Todd Rundgren. And Todd is currently in the middle of his Clearly Human tour, which is a virtual tour, all based out of Chicago, Yet each show is themed for a different broadcast market. You can buy tickets to stream the Clearly Human virtual tour in the comfort of your own home at nocapshows.com. And he has shows going through March 22nd. We can play this game anymore, but can we still be friends? Things just can't go. first record on your own how did that one come around runt it was you said it was a vanity project yeah i have been doing a lot of work for bearsville you know anything that they threw at me i would take on i had continued to write songs after i left the nanas it wasn't like i didn't care about music you know kind of deprioritize it and i didn't want to go out and have to promote myself as a performer you know i didn't feel confident as a singer i didn't want to go through the psychology of managing a band again, you know, that sort of thing. And having to be a front man. Having to be the front man. I'd yeah. never been a front man before. So I did this vanity project out in LA, same studio that the Nas had recorded in and that I would record my records until something, anything. And, and uh, they put it out and it accidentally had a hit single on it. Top 20 hit. A minor hit. It started to break in a couple of cities. The song was called We Gotta Get You a Woman. And at the same time, there was a very militant feminist movement happening that, for some reason, misinterpreted the lyrics. You know, people need to pay attention to their grammar lessons a little better, you know. But <laughs> there's a line in the song that says, things about that special one, they may be stupid, but they sure are fun. 
It's stupid things. It's not talking about women being stupid. It's talking about little quirks that everybody has, you yeah. know, that, you know, you, you find amusing or whatever. And it, like they got a silly laugh or something like that. You know? We got to get you But they misinterpreted it grammatically, thinking that I was calling women stupid. And so they started calling in bomb threats to radio stations that were putting Oh, God, really? Yeah. And so (laughs) just as the record was taking off, it was also being removed from playlists. So it became a minor hit, enough of a hit that people would request it even to this day. But it did not go maybe as far as it would have, but it forced me out on the road. meant that I had to learn how to become a performer. There's some discussion among Todd Rundgren fans. Was Runt the name of the band or the name of the album or both? No. The first album was, the title of the album was Runt. No, the title of the, <laughs> the, title of the album was Runt, the Ballad of Todd Rundgren. That was a, the whole title of the album. Quite obviously by some guy in no, the no the album album title was Runt, and it was by Todd Rundgren. Okay, because the second one was the Ballad of Todd Rundgren, and it said Runt on it because of that particular confusion, because people thought Runt was the name of the band. I don't know who thought that the title of the album was Todd Rundgren, but. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, people thought Runt was the name of the band. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, just out of marketing, you know, the label wanted to put Runt somewhere in the package, the second one. So it was Runt the Ballad of Todd Rundgren by Todd Rundgren. <laughs> and Runt the Ballad of Todd Rundgren is the title of it. Well, that was your first and second album. The third album, man, that hit like an atom bomb. Something, anything. It's got... Big hits on it. It's got your biggest hit on it. And mm-hmm. what was different about this record? I mean, you played all almost all the instruments on this one, didn't you? For three sides, I played all the instruments. On the previous two records, I was not the rhythm section. I was not confident enough in my drum playing at that point, you know, to take over the entire rhythm section. Yeah. But I had enough time and exposure to drums that I thought, okay, I'm going to take the leap and play drums on my own record. <laughs> wow. And discovered that I, had, that I actually had to, whenever I did that, I had to play the drums first. The very first song that I recorded, I think, was, it wasn't I Saw the Light. I think it, was, I would, it wouldn't have made any difference. I think I started with something down-tempo. You know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I would you can ease into and, it. Uh, and what I first tried to do was play the piano part all the way through and keep tempo and then play the drums along to that. And I discovered that that was never going to happen. That yeah. I just was speeding up, slowing down, loud, you know, all over the place, you know, just trying to stay in sync with the piano. Right. Because I couldn't hear the, 
you know, the actual sort of rhythmic pulse in the piano part. Right. So I realized that what I would have to do is memorize the song and then pretend to hear the song in my head while I'm playing it. Hear the piano part in my head while I'm playing the whole song. Yeah, hear the vocal melody. And that way it was easier for me to keep the tempo somewhere under control. At yeah. least, you know, the tempos would usually speed up as I would get through the song, but at least it wouldn't be like speed up and then slow down and speed up and then slow down. <laughs> and, up and, down. and that became the modus operandi for all of my, you know, whenever I did recording and playing live drums on it. Yeah. Live drums first, playing the song in my head and then doing the overdubs after that. What musical benefits do you get from playing an instrument that you're maybe learning on the fly or you're not quite as proficient as your main instrument? Well, you don't need, and often, you know, it kind of gets kind of ridiculous. Like you would hire the world's best session drummer and just have him play straight eights on everything. Yeah, you know? right. It's like sometimes you get a drummer and you teach them something that's so damn simple that it's way below their pay grade. You know, it's yeah. like, it's like, why did you hire me just to do that? You know, <laughs> you could have done that. And I suddenly realized, yeah, often I could do it because it isn't, doesn't require necessarily the greatest amount of technique. The more important part and the greatest benefit that I get out of doing everything myself is that I know exactly what everybody's playing because I'm playing it. Yeah. You know? right. So it all fits together perfectly. Yeah. Because I know exactly what everybody's playing. So it isn't necessary for me to play the most technical thing. It's so I have to play the most appropriate thing for the song. And that kind of applies to arranging in general. You know, sometimes yeah. I would often buy an instrument because I like the sound of it, like I would buy an oboe. And I would just get enough sound out of the oboe to play like one little line in a song. And that's the only time I ever played oboe on record in my life. <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> but it worked. Yeah, right. I'm going to hire an oboe player, you know, and pay him probably the equivalent of buying an oboe. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> just buy a damn oboe, you know. And now you got some wall art for later. Well, I wish I had still have my oboe, but I don't know where it is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this album has your biggest hit on it, Hello, It's Me, which... I found this so hard to believe. That song is fantastic. And that was the first song you wrote? The very first song I wrote, yeah. Wow. Well, I was, you know, sitting in the house that the managers of the NAS, the original managers, guys who owned the record store, they gave us a place to stay. And I'm sitting in there alone, realizing that we have to start writing our own material. We can't keep doing cover songs. And there's no piano in the house. So I'm sitting there with my guitar, wondering what to do. And I'm listening to a Jimmy Smith record. Jimmy Smith, the organ player, jazz organist. of Some thing that he did in a club somewhere. And he's doing an intro to a song called When Johnny Comes Marching Home. And it's just a bunch of descending chords that he's improvising. I'm listening to that. And I say, I really like the way those changes sound. I'm going to work them out on the guitar. So I worked them out on the guitar. And after I worked them out on the guitar, I realized, hey, I got the beginning of a song now. Yeah. You know, I, it doesn't matter that I stole these changes from Jimmy Smith. That's what everybody <laughs> Sure. I had realized, you know, everybody steals music from everybody else. It's too small a palette that we're working with. So almost everything probably on the first record has some antecedent, some 
specific song that I'm basing it on. Yeah, interesting. I probably don't remember what they are at this point, you know, but that, that's the point of music. You know, like I say, is such a small palette that you're dealing with that music is really the art of obfuscation. Hiding the things you've stolen so that people don't recognize them. <laughs> uh, you hide them in plain sight. And, you know, if you don't do that, then you get sued by the people who originally wrote the song. <laughs> yeah. like George Harrison. Did. I was just thinking of George Harrison. Yep. Sweet exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you wonder why nobody like told him. <laughs> and if somebody told him why he ignored them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, how did you come up with this, the new arrangement? Did you just, while you were working on the record, you just heard the song in your head again and it had this new vibe to it? Because the original version the Naz did is a slower ballad, certainly. Well, that one was done live. That was one of the, that was from the live side. So, oh, okay. And that was in New York, right? Those sessions were in yeah, New York? Yeah, in New York. The rest of the album was done in LA, but most all of the live stuff. Uh, I did, let me see now. Slut was done live in LA. But let me see, some stuff was done up in Bearsville Studios, and some of it was done at the record plant in uh, a marathon three-song session that we did. Uh, I called up Moogie Klingman in the morning on a Sunday, I believe it was, and said, uh, I want to do a session today, and we're going to do three songs. Can you get me? Blah, 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 blah. These kind of musicians, I need a bunch of background singers. So he got, you know, like some people that eventually would be in the could eventually wind up in Utopia. The Brecker Brothers horn section, which was yet to be called the Brecker Brothers horn section, it, even though it was the original personnel, they hadn't commercialized themselves yet. And he also got a whole bunch of people from the cast of Hair, the original cast of Hair. Those are the people singing background on Hello, It's Me and a couple of the other songs. I will never listen to that song the same way again. Once I heard that, I found that out and I listened to it again. And now it's, it's like I'm hearing it for the first time every time I think about that. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. It was just the thing that came together. Yeah. I just said, you know, all I did was tell him I want a different feel on it. You know, the, the Nas version is just very boom, 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 dirgy, slow, sad. Music had changed. I wanted a more up-to-date R&B feel, you know. Yeah. So I said, let's give it more of us, you know, a funk thing, a little bit of funk in there, R&B and funk. And everybody knew what I was talking about, and they played it. <laughs> Hello, it's me. Know, the meaning of the song is completely the inverse of the experience that I had. The experience I had was a girl that I was in love with in high school dumped me. But I 
made it the other way around. I wrote the song like I dumped her. But <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to come off as a victim for the rest of my life. What about I Saw the Light? That's the other big one. Such a huge song in your catalog on that album. Well, that song, there is not a lot to tell except for the ultimate effect that it had on my songwriting. It took me about 20 minutes to write the whole thing. Really? And after I was done, I thought, geez, that was easy. That was too easy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, right. And then the fact that it was, you know, so successful almost confirmed that. Because what happened after that, and you know, the similar songs, I was using a formula of some kind at that point. I had developed a you know a songwriting formula. Interesting. And uh, after the record came out, everyone said, you know, he's the new Carol King. And I thought, you know, I'm a Carol King fan. I listen to Tapestry, but I don't want to be compared to anybody else. I'd rather have people compared to me. So, <laughs> so after something, anything, I said, I'm not writing that kind of stuff anymore. I'm not going to do those, you know, silly love songs and the things that I can write in 20 minutes. I'm going to delve a little deeper into my musical mind and actually write about the stuff that's really in there. You know, essentially when I was writing songs, I got to a point where I would just like get into a different kind of head, you know, that only allowed me to do this stuff. You know, you're only allowed to do this. While there is all of this other crap that's going on in my head, that's, that's reflected by things like I went to the mirror, you know, and uh, breathless things that don't fit into that, you know, into that sort of typical pop formula. Right. That obviously led to Wizard of True Star, which is the polar opposite of something, anything. Exactly. In terms of the fact that I wasn't thinking in terms of writing songs. I knew that there'd be songs on it. Some things would eventually turn out to be songs. But I said, if I've got a musical idea that I think is a good idea, and then I sort of run out of idea, I don't have to leave it off the record. I can put it on the record just as is. If it's just like a 70-second idea, but it's a good idea, we'll put it on there. We'll figure out a way to fit it in. Yeah. You know? Put it in with a bunch of other little short ideas, and that didn't have to be, you know, like forced into being some sort of song form. Right. So that kind of re redefined what I should be doing musically, more or less from there on. I would still come back to more traditional songwriting every once in a while, just as, you know, maybe an exercise. Like I'd do an album like A Hermit of Mink Hollow, where everything's just a song, you know, and there's no, not necessarily any grand concept to it or anything like that. 
But, you know, as soon as I do that, I'm off to do some other thing like acapella or initiation or some other thing like that. Yeah. An interesting note about Wizard of True Star is one of the longest single LPs ever made. It clocks in at like 56 minutes. Yeah, it was not it was not recommended. <laughs> right. The more music you squeeze on, you start to lose audio fidelity. Not only lose fidelity, you lose the actual volume. And you imperil the listening experience by making skipping more likely because the grooves are so shallow that as soon as anyone on the house starts walking across the floor, <laughs> the stylus starts skittering across the record. So, yeah, there was a, a, a recommendation that amounted to, you know, permission to bootleg the record in a way. So the, there, I think there was a note on there that said there's a whole lot of music on here. You know, it's going to be hard to hear it at the at the necessary volume unless you very first thing you do is record it to tape. First thing you do, as soon as you take it out of the sleeve, is record it to tape. Then you can listen to the tape as loud as you want. Yeah. But it was tortured. It was tortured a master. Uh, he had to roll a lot of the you know low end off in sure. order to fit it all on there. So it doesn't sound as you know full spectrum as i ever wanted it to yeah as i say sound is kind of the last consideration sound quality and in some cases what appears to be you know non-standard sound quality sometimes becomes inspiration to people later sure like in recent years i've been working with a couple of norwegian guys we had a release come out called run dance which was a multi-year international collaboration but the first sessions that i were doing with them they were begging me to make the kinds of sounds and noises that came off of something anything and todd and all of those original records right after we built secret sound and the mandate was to come up with the weirdest sounds you can come up with yeah because here you have permission to do that uh, this record, you just said, it shaped the way you approached your albums that followed that. Did it also change the way that you approached producing? Well, because we built our own studio, it did. Yeah. I had gotten used to block booking before. The, all of the Nas records that we had done and my solo records, I purposely used a very small and not very in-demand studio so that I could block book it, so that I could so that nobody else would be doing sessions in there until I was done. And so by the time we got to uh, Wizard of True Star, I decided I wanted to have a studio that I could go into anytime I had the inspiration to do so. Yeah. It would essentially just be my toy unless I specifically let somebody else play with the toy for some period of time. And so that changed the whole philosophy of recording. It was no longer, you know, Sessions will be every day at this hour, unless I'm doing somebody else, of course. Yeah. No, sessions would be whenever I got the inspiration to do a session, that's when the session would happen. And there was nobody already booked in there. Right. You just declare it like at noon and start recording at one, you know, if you found the people available to do it. So uh, there was that, you know, the block booking and also the ability to do anything that I wanted with the equipment, to plug it in. Plug it together anyway, I felt. If I happen to blow something up, you know, fine, that's on me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah, replace right. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and as a result, we came up a whole with, you know, some great sounding records, but also some very unusual groundbreaking records in terms of the sound. 
So in terms of overall production, yeah, I create a brand new recording space, which I often do, like rent a house or rent a barn or something like that. Just like stage fright, get everybody up, you know, make everybody comfortable. They might be living in the same space right. as we're recording in. And essentially uh, all ours to do whatever we want with whenever we feel inspired to do it. Yeah. Do you feel that moving to a, a new location will offer some level of inspiration in itself? I think for, uh, you know, from an artist standpoint, it can be inspiring. It can also be unsettling and had that happen, you know, but some artists are just uh, unsettled at the idea of going in the studio. So yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. it may have to do with location, but it may just have to do with the situation. Yeah. I don't factor that in necessarily. You know, I've done several albums here and everyone seems happy with the idea of coming to Hawaii to record a record. Yeah, yeah a bummer. They go, oh, what a bummer going to Hawaii for a month. I, I imagine you get to work with some bands and they're maybe not quite ready to go. Maybe they're just uh, a more of a, a block of clay that you kind of have to mold. Was it that way with Grand Funk when you did We're an American Band? Not at all. They already knew that there were things that they had to do that ha that they hadn't been doing. You know, the the first thing I did was get rid of their management because that was like defining everything they did. You know, he was Svengali, you know, he's their Svengali and he brought them great success, but also a lot of critical disrepute, you know, that everyone thought that they were just kind of mediocre at best. And that was because they tried to be a jam band and they weren't at the same level of musicianship and creativity as, for instance, Cream. Sure. You know, they, uh, they had been working out of a much smaller musical pool, you know, the kind of that Flint, Detroit, Flint, Michigan thing, which was all based around R&B for the most part. It produced Bob Seger and, and their manager, Terry Knight, you know, and they all, you know, had a certain degree of R&B influence and they all played in each other's bands. And so it was kind of a little bit incestuous, that whole thing. But, you know, at the same time, you know, they were hugely successful. They were like a bankable festival act and they were somehow making enough money on the sales of their records as critically panned as they were for them to buy the biggest billboard that had ever been ever been painted in Times Square, you know, which pissed everybody <laughs> off even more, you know. <laughs> and so then these three topless guys staring down on everyone, you know, like they were like kings of the musical world. And uh, and so after all of that, you know, they realized that the one thing they didn't have was legitimacy, you know. And so they got rid of their manager who was like keeping them kind of in in a – backwater, musical backwater in some sense, uh, realized that they'd have to be, start writing songs and even start writing singles, like we're an American band, you know? Yeah. Pay attention to that. Don't just record a bunch of stuff and then hope one of those things is a single. You know, start out with a, you know, with a purpose, you know, and write songs that expose the musicality of the band and don't expose the band's weaknesses, you know? Right, right. And, uh, from that standpoint, the rest is history. I didn't have to do anything but make sure that that they followed their own formula, you know, and yeah. that I, you know, that I made sure that the songs that they 
intended to be singles sounded like singles, you know, and the album tracks sound like album tracks. Yeah. <laughs> and that sort of thing. But I probably had a lot of suggestions about background vocals and things like that, which I often have. So between all of us, their planned uh, work like clockwork. mentioned cream there talking about you know their musicianship how did you come to acquire eric clapton's psychedelically painted sg the fool well it it had gone through a lot of hands before i got to it someone contacted me and said jackie lomax has the fool guitar and he wants to sell it and i thought i want to own that guitar right considering all the hours i've spent like six feet away from it, staring at it. When I would go see Eric and Cream play at the Cafe Agogo in New York and sit in the very front row. Wow. And that's not a big place either. No, and you can still hear. Yeah, in fact, my ears are still ringing yeah, from it. I was going to say. <laughs> so I went to see the guitar, to see him and the guitar, and it was in horrible shape. They had been using it as a lap guitar. It had a wood bridge on it. And the old pet tailpiece was completely gone. Really? The back of the neck up by the headstock, Eric had played it so much and so often and sweated in it so much that it was like balsa wood and the wood was crumbling off. And eventually the headstock snapped off and I had to have that replaced. So yeah, I bought the guitar and then the first thing I did was have someone restore the paint job, which was flaking all off. Yeah, because they had never sealed it after they originally painted it. They just put the paint on and then there was no overcoat on it. So little bits of the paint had flaked all off of it. So you used that guitar quite a bit in the 70s, didn't you? I played it quite a bit. And then in the late 80s, I got a replica. A guy in Japan gave me a replica, which was the same model year guitar and pretty nearly the same paint job, except it was much brighter because he got (laughs) he did it from pictures in a magazine and I began to play that because it sounded better it was the the original pickups on the fool they had taken some of the windings off the pickups to give it a sharper sound Mm -hmm. probably because of the kind of amplification they were using whatever but it was common in those days to mess around with your pickups to uh, change the sound so the original just had a better sound and I played that until Oh, in the mid-90s sometime, I auctioned off The Fool because I got in trouble with the IRS. No! No! You talked about some albums, sometimes you would do just song-oriented stuff, and the the Hermit of Mink Hollow, you mentioned that one. Can We Still Be Friends is on that record. Mm -hmm. And Robert Palmer did a great cover of that, too. How do you feel about folks covering your songs? Is it interesting for you to hear can We Still Be Friends is probably my most covered song. We can't play this game anymore, but can we still be friends? Things just can't go on like before, but can we still be friends? We had so 
many people covered that song that, and in so many different ways. I mean, Colin Blundstone did it. Rod Stewart covered it. Jennifer Warren's covered it. You know, it's been covered by like yeah. everybody. Uh, that's a great thing. You know, even better if they have a hit, hit record with it. Yeah, right, right, right. It used to be when I would hear somebody do the song, I'd say, well, that's not the original intention. And then I realized it's like, you're lucky to have somebody else's favorite song. <laughs> you know, compare the writer's royalties of the England Dan and John Ford Coley version of Love is the Answer to the Utopia version of Love is the Answer. And it's completely different in favor of England Dan and John Ford Coley. songwriter out there battles with self-consciousness at one point or another when people do cover it and they have hits with your songs like that too it's got to be it just really has to reinforce your belief in yourself as a, an artist and a songwriter i guess that's got to be a really gratifying feeling to see somebody else take what you've done and know it's just not you as an artist but it's it's really the art the songs that you create that really have something special going on Especially if you don't think of yourself as writing songs for other people. Yeah. I only write songs for myself. Like recently, you know, I did a little bit of writing towards other artists during like White Knight Records when I was doing a lot of collaborations, you know. Yeah. The beginning of the end, you know, I always wanted John Boutte to sing that song. For the most part, I write the songs to be reflective of things I actually it's a way of me objectivizing my thoughts and then being able to learn from them in a way. To say, like, that's a kind of a dumb idea. Maybe you just think about that a little more, you know, <laughs> or wow, there's a there's a truth in there that I didn't even actually realize. You know, something that you've been living by, but you never articulated. So yeah. I think the only value in it, or the true value in it is in that, is in that me talking to myself and other people overhearing the conversation and suddenly thinking that I'm singing about them. Yeah. That the thoughts I'm having about myself are kind of the same thoughts they're having about the Those universal thoughts, the universal truths of the human existence. Yeah, the thing, I don't wonder necessarily about things other people wonder about, you know. Sure. I wonder about my purpose in life. I wonder about, you know, good versus evil. I wonder about the cosmos, you know, yeah, stuff right. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are we here? Blah, blah, blah. You know, all of that stuff. I wonder about that just like everybody else does. Yeah, right. I wonder about, you know, how did I get myself in this particular situation? You know, and maybe if I write a song about it, I won't get myself into that situation again. I'll learn not to do that. And then, you know, it's not as if my experience is so completely unique from other people. I never feel like retiring. I never feel like I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. I've learned everything that I'm supposed that I'm supposed to. I hate being put in a position uh, of having to play just my old stuff, you know. And because it's not the stuff I'm thinking about anymore, sure. the stuff I'm thinking about 
you know, my freshest thoughts are in my freshest material. So I'd much rather be playing that than I would, you know, the older stuff. But if I, you know, find the proper context for it, I will do it without being bitter. (laughs) (laughs) I will, you know, but I will remind myself, you know, that I have the opportunity and often the obligation, you know, to write about my present thoughts, what I'm thinking now. A million old soldiers will fade away, but a dream goes on forever. I'm left standing here, I got nothing to say. All is silent within my Thanks very much to Todd Rundgren for being so generous with his time for this interview. Make sure to check out one of the shows from his clearly human virtual tour happening right now. You can get tickets at nocapshows.com. Be well. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.